Our topic this morning, in keeping with our theme for the week of the autobiography of a yogi, is how to be an emissary for Master's Joy. My name is Atman. I serve here at Ananda Village, and I'm joined by a panel of people from all parts of Ananda up and down the West Coast. They're going to introduce themselves when they come up. So to start, I wanted to touch on a couple of themes that we started the week with in Jyotish's talk, because they're important for this subject. Just to reiterate a little bit about Yogananda's mission and what the autobiography brought, what Yogananda brought to the West. First and foremost was a completely new conception of the divine, of God. God is Satchitanandam, ever-existing, ever-conscious, ever new bliss, which was in great opposition to the reigning conceptions of the divine that existed in America at that time of a aloof, faraway, judgmental uh, Judeo-Christian God. Second thing that he brought that was very important was that that God is manifest in this universe. Satchitanandam is part of everything in creation, that that ever new bliss can be experienced by those especially who have the grace to be born into a human body, that that God is knowable. And he brought the techniques that allowed people to find that, to know, to know that God. Another important point that Jyotish touched on was that in this mission, it's not behind the walls of the monasteries or the nunneries that we're going to look for God and barricade ourselves. It's in the everyday battle of life that we're going to seek this and that that life in Dwapara Yuga is there to help us to seek God. And it's not that that seeking is a struggle all along the way, that there is uh, sort of like Olympic training. We have this conception of the spiritual path. I mean, the Olympics are on. So, you know, you see these guys and these uh, women struggling for years going through the pain and the sacrifice of long, arduous practice. They get to the race, they're struggling, they're puffing and huffing, and finally they win the race and get up onto the podium to receive that gold medal. Well, that's not the spiritual path that Yogananda brought. <laughs> what he taught is that it's a, it's a joy all along the way, doing the right thing leads to ever greater experience of that inner bliss, of that knowing inside us, that it's not we have to struggle and struggle. It's, you know, as it says in the festival, that uh, whereas sorrowing, whereas <coughs> suffering and sorrow is the coin of man's redemption, where in the past our payment has been exchanged for calm acceptance and joy. So that expressing that joy as we go, it gets endlessly liberating. It struggles at first, but then we move into an endless experience of that joy until we reach liberation. So these are all fairly radical concepts. And what I like to focus on today is this idea of the, the struggle or the battle, because there is a struggle, there's a battle. The joy is there, it comes forth, but there's a, you need to fight that battle. And there's a phrase that uh, an affirmation that Yogananda had in his East-West magazine in the 30s that has always uh, spoken to me and caught my attention. It's, life is a struggle of joy all along the way. May I fight to win that battle on the very spot where I now am. 
Life is a struggle of joy all along the way. A struggle of joy against what? Against delusion, against this material maya, this manifestation of this world, which is set up to pull us away from that ever new conscious bliss that we're seeking. And as we look for that, we need to be able to say, how am I going to do this? How am I going to work with this battle, this battle of joy? And it's something that it takes, uh, it takes great focus to focus against this delusion because as Master said, quoting, quoted by Swami in the path, he said, uh, you know, I add my testimony to those who have gone before that, that Satan, this power of delusion, this power of maya, it's a real force. It's a very real conscious force in this universe whose sole aim is to keep us bound to the wheel of material delusion. So it's a strong force. It's a battle. Life is a struggle all along the way, a struggle of joy. And we have to fight that battle on the spot where we now are. Well, fortunately, we have a line of masters who have had some great experience in being warriors of joy and being warriors in many different lives. And although it's not so much emphasized in this life, if you look at their past and some of the tendencies, you can see where they've come from. And just even starting with Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ is often seen as this, you know, loving presence, bringing a message of God is love. But what else did he do? He threw the money changers out of the temple single-handedly, overturned centuries of tradition and just sent them running. And Lahiri Mahashaya, uh, Yogananda said that in a past life, he had one of his past lives, he was a, a great king, King Janaka in India. It was a just kingdom, but a kingdom that he had to fight and defend and rule as, a, as an emperor, as a ruler. And Yogananda talked about his own guru. He said in one of his chapters in the autobiography, he said, as I contemplated the majesty of my guru, I often thought that he, if, he, if he chose to, he could be an emperor or a world-changing warrior. He just had that energy. I mean, you look at Yukteswar, you can see there's a, there's a warrior energy there. And in this life, it was focused on a few disciples and knocking loose their teeth of delusion, as we heard about. But that energy was there. And then what of Yogananda himself, as Jyotish mentioned in, in the beginning, uh, at descending Dwapara Yuga, at the same point, roughly where this new path came into, this new dispensation came, there was... Krishna and Arjuna. Krishna was Babaji. Babaji, the one of our gurus. He was a great king. He was a great warrior fighting for righteousness. He was the king of Dwarka. And he was also the guru, the leader of the Pandavas in the great battle of Kurukshetra, which we know about from the story of the Mahabharata. And the battle of Kurukshetra actually did happen. There was a battle on the plains of India where this great clashing of the, the ages came and it, it brought in the end of Dwapara Yuga and descent into Kali Yuga. But the allegory of the Mahabharata is much more instructive for us in that thinking of that battle. And Arjuna, as it says in the commentaries of the Gita, which Master wrote, is, is devotee every man he represents. But 
Arjuna was also none other than our Yogananda, our guru. And he was this incredibly powerful warrior, the supreme archer, the master of many cosmic weapons of where he could single-handedly defeat the forces of delusion. And who was driving his chariot? But Babaji Krishna, Krishna, the great warrior who didn't fight, but who said, I will guide you. I will show you how to fight this battle. And you must fight, even though these are your relatives laid before you. So what they were fighting, the Pandavas, the forces of good, were fighting against the forces, the Kauravas, the forces of evil, of delusion, of Maya, of Satan, who were led by their king Duryodhana, the king material desire, and lined up on that side were the ego, the force of habit, the inclination to seek happiness in the material world. There were many, many, many warriors on that side. And on the side of the, the good was Arjuna, guided by his guru, and with his brothers, the other Pandavas. And the Bhagavad Gita comes from a section of that, talking about that battle and how to fight this battle, how to cling to that guru, cling to that divine joy so you can fight this battle. And they were, of course, triumphant in the end. And then Yogananda passed into some other incarnations. And he actually made it a point to tell the people, his disciples at Mount Washington, including Swamiji, that in, a, in the 11th century in Europe, he had been none other than William the Conqueror. And as the Duke of Normandy, he had taken an invasion force, crossed the channel and conquered the British Isles and set up a whole new form of government. And this was, uh, looking back in history, this was an extremely important event in the evolution of the West, in the evolution it's moved towards Dwapara Yuga. It was before Dwapara Yuga, but the interdiction of a unified language, of unified forms of government, of the rights of the individual, of a government of law. These were all epoch-changing things that were brought by none other than Yogananda, as a great warrior. He was also in that life, he lived as a saint, as a, but he was, fought a very outward battle. He said that later, several centuries later, he came back again as a, as a general and a king in Spain. And through some research and looking, Swamiji has said that it's probably, he probably was uh, King Fernando III el Santo, Ferdinand III, the saint, whose mission it was in Spain to unite the Spanish forces and to move the Moors farther out of the Iberian Peninsula. And in both of those lifetimes, who followed the master in those roles? In the role of uh, William the Conqueror was Henry I, who Swami said I f he felt that he was Henry I, and he followed up, was a king, was a great leader, consolidated those. Again, he thought that he was Alfonso X, Alfonso X, who followed Fernando in the fight in Spain. So these, our masters are no, uh, no strangers to the, to the sense of being a warriors and being a battle. Well, what about in this life? You know, you think of... Yogananda often is the prem avatar, the avatar of love, and not so much this, this warrior. But if we look closely, we can get a lot of guidelines about how we should fight this struggle of joy all along the way. So Yogananda, in 1920, had finished his training in his guru's ashram. He was happily leading a small boys' school in Ranchi. And one day he was meditating in his uh, favorite storeroom where he could find his way away from the prying eyes of the little children. And the commander-in-chief called. 
The commander-in-chief said, it's time to deploy. You're going. You're going behind enemy lines. We're sending you into that bastion of materialism. You're going to the West. And Yogananda, as a true warrior of this expeditionary force, did not flinch at all. Within hours, he had handed the school over to his uh, very surprised teachers. He had entrained for Calcutta, and he had started to make preparations for his disembarkation to America. And he had some trepidations. He said, you know, it's, you know, the Oriental teacher who would dare the heirs of the West must be strong beyond any, must be fortified beyond any Himalayan cold. So he knew what he was getting up against and the, the battle that he was facing there. And he sought the blessing of his guru. He sought the blessing of Babaji, who did come to him at the last minute, and he embarked in 1920 for America. And what was his first talk on the boat? He was, his first talk in America was the science of religion, but he also gave a talk on the boat. And the talk's title was The Battle of Life and How to Win It. <laughs> and when he landed in America, he, he knew no one. He didn't have a, a friend. He had a few invitations. He had a little bit of money from his, his father's bequest, but he moved forth to conquer that land. And how did he do it? Did he do it with this sense of uh, some of the same weapons that some of the other spiritual teachers in America might be using of condemnation, of fear, of guilt, of the sense of sin? No, he realized that, you know, you're not going to you're not going to win this battle of joy by employing Satan's weapons. You have to employ the weapons of the divine. And what were his weapons? Enthusiasm, joy, an inner sense of connection with that divine and the ability to spread that to others, to convince them that that divinity was in them as well. Once they had tuned into that divine, they also could move out in life. But he didn't, he didn't shy away at all from the, the battles of life. I mean, he and Divine Mother gave them to him in spades. He had people betray him. He had lawsuits against him. He had prejudice, being a dark-skinned person in 1920 in America. He was run out of town in the South by the sheriff, uh, was threatened to his life. But through this all, he was just fighting the struggle of joy all along the way with that sense of inner communion, that sense of joy. He didn't seek to reform the outer structures of America. That's the realm of delusion. That's the realm of Maya. He sought to reform consciousness from within by radiating his own divine consciousness. Now, he did participate in a few subtle realms that had some very far-reaching effects, such as he decided to put in the mind of Hitler that he should invade Russia and thus split his forces during World War II and allow the Allied forces to move forward. So, you know, he was still keeping in touch with the broad themes. He also put the idea in Truman's mind that he should go and defend South Korea. And he said it was important to stop the godless communism from spreading through the Korean peninsula into Japan and possibly into America. So he was aware of that, that broader aspect. But what he really taught us was that sense of, of inner joy, of how to, how to fight and radiate from that one and not be discouraged. You know, it's a struggle of joy against delusion. The delusion's going to be there. But that was, Master was completely undaunted. And likewise, his disciple Swamiji, 
followed in his footsteps and was took on an incredible task. I mean, think about, you know, he was penniless. He was thrown out of the organization and he was he had the mission of bringing us along the third wave, founding this World Brotherhood colonies of fighting through the delusion and the Maya of that might have been here when people were first starting Ananda Village. And he just radiated that joy, non-judgmental, always with the most kindness, with the most support of people, just as his master did. But he fought that struggle of joy all along the way. And he sent us out to do that as well. And there's an interesting story that stays with me a lot. And that's, uh, he had sent some people to start a new center, a new work. And it's a lot of work and it's a lot of struggle. It's a lot of struggle for joy all along the way. And sometimes they weren't doing so well with that battle and the spot where they were. And they asked Swamiji about it. He said, Swamiji, how do, we, how do we find balance in our lives? Because, you know, your example is one of tremendous activity you know, throughout in the world. And you're just always out there serving and doing this. And, you know, how do we find the balance? And so we can do that as too. And Swamiji said, you know, very thoughtfully, he said, you know, there's really only one difference, and this is the key difference, and this is a key point you need to remember. As I'm serving, I never lose my sense of inner joy. I am always in touch with Master. I am always in touch with the Divine. When you lose that sense of inner joy, you're no longer going to be winning the battle. You're going to be, if you're doing what looks like good things with a wrong attitude, it's not going to work. So you need to back off. You need to recenter. You need to find that sense of inner joy again so that you can go back out and fight that battle and win in another time. So where are we? We're here. We're here fighting that battle, the struggle of joy all along the way. We need to struggle on the very spot we are now. It doesn't matter what we're doing, where we're serving. Stay in touch with that inner joy, that inner divine peace and love and radiate that out into whatever you do. And I just want to close with some, a couple lines from the poem. This is how Yogananda closed his chapter of I Go to America. It's with his poem, God, God, God. And this was put to music by Swamiji and sung beautifully for us by, by Chaitanya Wednesday night during the concert. And the two lines that I have always stuck with me as I'm fighting the struggle of joy all along the way is the spotlight of my mind ever keeps turning on thee and in the battle din of activity my silent war cry will be God, God, God and when boisterous storms of trials shriek and when worries howl at me I will drown their noises loudly chanting God, God, God May we all fight to win the battle on the very spot where we now are. Thank you, Atman. Here at Ananda Village, along with my family and to serve here at the Expanding Light. So I must say, as I stand here uh, as an emissary of Yogananda's joy, speaking and in fact representing this topic today, and look around this amphitheater, I have to comment, I think this must be a United Nations of Yogananda's joy. 
uh, rare and few are the places in this world where we can gather together as spiritual family, as guru bhais, to share this inspiration and this joy. So how must we be emissaries of master's joy? Certainly we must fight the battle of life and we must do it with enthusiasm, which is a function of our will. You know, um, again, as I look around here, I see so many dear friends, many I know, some I don't as well, but uh, many are successful, many are talented, many are happy and very fulfilled people um, and good at what they do. But the common thread, I believe, that unites everyone here, and I think you'll agree with me, is that enthusiasm for God and Guru and for the joy that is, in fact, God himself. Um, one of my favorite quotes from Autobiography of a Yogi is from Bhadurya Mahashaya, the levitating saint. He says, I have left a few petty pleasures for a cosmic empire of endless bliss. How then have I denied myself anything? I know the joy of sharing the treasure. So what does it look like to live a life enthusiastic for God, for Guru, and to share that joy? Well, someone told the story earlier this week of Sri Yukteswar's rebuke, one of his admonitions to Yoganandaji, saying, counseling him to be more like the even uh, temperament of his father, the balanced Bhagavati Ghosh. And the tables were turned on old Bhagavati when father and son went to visit Swami Pranabhanandaji in Calcutta, the saint with two bodies, as Yogananda called him. And when they visited this brother disciple of uh, Lahiri Mahashai, he and Bhagavati as disciples, Pranabhanandaji, after lovingly embracing Bhagavati, he, he rebuked him. He admonished him and said, Bhagavati, what are you doing about yourself? Don't you see your son, Yogananda, racing toward the infinite? And he went on to counsel him, practice Kriya ceaselessly, reach the divine goal with zeal, with enthusiasm. And he quoted, of course, Lahiri, Banat, 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 Banjai, doing, 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 done, victory in God. So we must be racing towards God in this life. And look at this community of friends. Truly, I think, second only to the Guru, the Satguru, is the great blessing of divine friendship and community in this world. To have brothers and sisters in arms racing toward God together, racing toward the infinite. Um, the very word enthusiasm means intense or eager enjoyment or approval or interest. But we have to qualify this definition because we could be very enthusiastic, say, for health food, which is a perfectly fine thing to do. But you might only end up picky, eater, and broke. <laughs> so the yogi, the yogi is, of course, enthusiastic for God, as I said. And the very word enthusiasm comes from the Greek, entheos, in God, or the word enthus, inspired by God. So to be inspired by God means to be as Yogananda was, and as we must be racing toward the infinite. And how then to be an emissary of master's joy, specifically? Well, think of master. You know, serve him, love him with every breath, and hold him dear and near 
especially during hard times. You know, it's easier sometimes to feel the joy among friends when serving, perhaps, or in an uplifted state when meditation is good. But we need to practice when it's easier so that when challenges and tests come, we not only bring forth that joy, but that joy is what gets us through. That's how we default and face every opportunity, every challenge. Many of you will recall the story of William the Conqueror in his Norman conquest of England when alighting on English soil, he slipped and fell in the mud. And Swami would tell this story. A gasp went up among his men at this apparently bad omen. But immediately, what did William do? He rose to his feet and he cried out, no doubt with enthusiasm and with power of will. He cried, I'm so eager to conquer this land, I seize it with both my hands. So facing life and indeed trials, immediately with that joy and that enthusiasm, Swami Kriyananda himself, along with Yogananda, uh, corroborated from a lifetime really beset with trials of all kinds. And Swamiji, at the end of his life, he said, after a while it becomes sweet, you know, to have that joy and enthusiasm amidst trials, amidst tests. And he added somewhat wryly, he said, I eat eat persecution for breakfast now. (laughs) He said, sprinkle it on my cereal. (laughs) So enthusiasm in the face of all trials. And indeed, where does that enthusiasm come from? Certainly it's energy and joy, but it's also strength and power of will. You know, enthusiasm is not emotional excitement, restlessness. Enthusiasm is not about um, excitement. You know, it would be almost comical if it weren't that there were three avatars gathered during this story. But you'll remember um, Babaji himself veiled his consciousness and his physical body from Sri Yukteswar because of his excitement. Lahiri Mahashai said, Sri Yukteswar, didn't you behold Babaji there at the door? And Sri Yukteswar said, no. And he touched him on the forehead and he beheld the form of Babaji. He remembered a past hurt from Babaji, he said, and he didn't bow before the great avatar. Babaji said to Sri Yukteswar, you are annoyed with me. (laughs) And Sri Yukteswar said, why shouldn't I be? You appeared out of thin air with your magical group and then you vanished. And and Babaji said, I told you I would come, but I didn't say for how long. I was fairly extinguished by your restlessness and your excitement. And then he added to Sri Yukteswar, and of course the masters do this for our benefit, but nonetheless, the the lesson is certainly there. He added to Sri Yukteswar, of all people, you need to meditate more, child. (laughs) We're picking on Sri Yukteswar this week, but he can take it. He's an avatar. So... Excitement is not enthusiasm. Swami Kriyananda said, note the subtle feeling of doubt that comes with enthusiasm that is marred by excitement or restlessness. So the yogi is enthusiastic, is high energy, but centered always in the self. Also, to avoid moods is an important practice for the yogi. Swami Kriyananda on this subject was once asked during his time with Yogananda by the guru, How are you today, Walter? He said, well, very good. (laughs) Master's answer to him. That was it. He would have none of it. So if we would be in the presence of Master and his joy and to be emissaries of that all the time, we have to stay uplifted 
okay, not to be in uh, a mood of excitement, a mood of restlessness, a mood of despondency. We have to change our consciousness, which is how Swamiji taught us um, to work with moods and to work with those things, is to work on the level of consciousness. Another important component to enthusiasm, interestingly, is concentration. You know, it's very difficult not to think about something when we're enthusiastic about it. Swamiji said, I think it must be a concentration we seek in restlessness because our minds are racing to find something to hold it focused. So many of you know my daughter Tulsi. She's almost three years old. And Ananta spoke earlier this week about the power and the wisdom that can come from the mouth of, Jay, uh, mouth of children, of, of babes, as Jesus said. Um, and Tulsi says many wise things to me. Just this past week, as we were playing a game, the doctor game, incidentally, and I was trying to have a conversation with my mother-in-law, Padma, at the same time, she said, Daddy, we need to focus when we work. <laughs> okay? And she went on. This is a serious thing. She went on. Twice in the last two days, yesterday even, as we were playing this game and as I'm humming or singing to myself or even a little absentmindedly, Daddy, we focus when we work. Okay, like this. She said, we focus when we work. So to bring concentration, really, to bring concentration to everything we do is a way to channel that joy. And indeed, we can be joyful and hold our minds fixedly to everything and enjoy everything we do when we practice this enthusiasm. Another short story that speaks to this point, and also to the power of Swamiji's music, which we experienced so powerfully in the concert Wednesday night, is since having children these last few years, I've had to mitigate my involvement with things like choir, which I love to do, but for family responsibilities and a balanced schedule, just temporarily take a break from choir, which I've missed, singing Swami's music in that way. But what I've done, incidentally, is just picked up a guitar and learned to play some music, Swamiji's music and chants. Really, that's it. And still at an amateur level, though, I've learned to play dozens of Swamiji's songs and some chanting, and I felt tremendous power in this. Um, Just one example was learning early on to play the song. It happened to be this song. It could have been any, The Shawl of Gold. And singing this song and playing it, admittedly rather poorly, but singing it with my heart. And really, you need to focus when you try to play an instrument and sing. You you just have to. Um, I remember pausing and feeling waves of bliss, really, in my spine. Um, It's not something I experience very often. And I believe it came from my enthusiasm for this music and for this path and through my concentration playing that music. So certainly through Swamiji's music, but through any facet of the spiritual life, to bring that level of concentration, of enthusiasm, and will can bring us great, great joy from God and Guru. Finally, the highest component or the highest expression, you might say, of enthusiasm must be devotion. So devotion, we know, is really all that matters, spiritually speaking, to the devotee. If our love for God can be deep enough, centered and offered up constantly in the altar of the spine, in the heart, in the mind, then everything will be all right. God and Guru's joy will always be with us. And truly, what better example, who do we know, who is the greatest example of an emissary of master's joy, but Swami Kriyananda, 
relevant to our own lives, uh, there's no greater disciple or example of what it means to be an emissary, no greater lover of God, no greater accomplishments by any one man can be seen but for God and Guru. Swami Kriyananda showed us the power of discipleship, of concentration, of enthusiasm for Master. And that joy, that bliss was constantly pouring through him. And I just have to comment once again to see this legacy of Swamiji's. You know, if you haven't noticed already, he's still alive. He's in all of us. His joy is our joy, just as the Guru's joy is our very own. And as Master said beautifully uh, in his poem, Samadhi, he closed with these beautiful lines, a tiny bubble of laughter. I am become the sea of mirth itself. And in a recorded talk, many of you know this, you can hear him saying, say it again and again, a tiny bubble of laughter. I am become the sea of mirth itself. So that joy is always with us. And I'd like to close with these words together. If you would close your eyes and sit upright. These final words of Samadhi, just join me with the full force of your enthusiasm, of your concentration and will. Join me three times. A tiny bubble of laughter, I am become the sea of mirth itself. A tiny bubble of laughter, I am become the sea of mirth itself. A tiny bubble of laughter, I am become the sea of mirth itself. May Master's joy ever flow through you. Good morning. Good morning. My name is Brahmachari Tandava, and I live in the Ananda community in Palo Alto, and it is an honor to be here. Um, Badri gave me the perfect setup without me even asking him, because I was going to start with chapter 14 of Autobiography of a Yogi, An Experience in Cosmic Consciousness. This is the first time in that particular life that Yogananda had an experience of samadhi. And what did he say right after it? He said, Sri Yukteswar taught me to summon the blessed experience at will and to transmit it to others. And then he added this little caveat, which was, if their intuitive channels are developed, by which I assume that I am not quite that developed yet since he hasn't transmitted it to me. But what else did he give us? He wrote a poem. Samadhi. And he told us, memorize this poem, Samadhi. Repeat it every day. I can do that. So there's, even if we're not ready for that tap on the chest that sends us there, we can memorize Samadhi. We can repeat it every day. And he said, tune into that consciousness that is in that poem to get closer and closer to it. It is the nature of joy to want to share itself. And it's the nature of art in any form, to embody a state of consciousness and help transmit and develop that state of consciousness. And there's a perfect example right there. Master has samadhi. Master writes us a poem. He just turns it right around into art to send it out, sharing that with the world. Um, Master and Swami were both immensely artistic, creative people, writing books, music, painting, creating communities, schools, businesses, um, 
And inasmuch as all of Krishna's soldiers look like Krishna, as the saying goes, many of us who are drawn to this path are also very artistic and creative. And even if we don't do something that it looks explicitly like art, uh, whatever we do in our business or in our lives, we tend to do it in a creative way. And I'm always just so immensely grateful for this, um, that we can take this, this joyful uh, mode of human expression, all of these modes of expression, and turn them in a spiritual direction to help ourselves and to help others. One of my favorite of Swami Kriyananda's books is Art as a Hidden Message, and it is just recently back in print, which I'm thrilled about because I can tell you to all go read it. Um, And not to spoil the plot, but the hidden message (laughs) of art that he refers to in the title is that state of consciousness that comes through the artist into whatever his creation is and moves on to the people on the other end, hearing it, listening to it, seeing it. Um, And Swami talks about all forms of of art, music, writing, painting, dance, sculpture, and he comes at from all angles, whether creating original art or performing somebody else's art or experiencing art. And, And through all of it, he shows and demonstrates how the same qualities that we need in our spiritual life can be developed through art, through any of these modes of expression, um, and how also we can use it as a service to others uh, by transmitting these uplifted vibrations. Um, I would like to illustrate with a few hundred examples this morning, but I only have 15 minutes, so I'm going to give you a little Samples, and you can use your own creativity uh, to find other ways to apply it. Um, back in my pre-monastic life, I did a lot of ballroom dancing. And, uh, and my name, Tandava, is actually uh, the name of Shiva's dance. So I, I like dance as a metaphor for a lot of things. Um, one of the first things I noticed when I started learning to dance is that my favorite people to dance with were not necessarily the best dancers, they're the people who enjoyed it the most and helped me the most so that we could share this joyful state of consciousness, whatever our feet happened to be doing at the time. <laughs> and you compare that to somebody who does the exact right, perfect steps and notices pointedly if you don't. Um, <laughs> which one do you want to dance with, really? Um, <laughs> you, want to have, you want to have the fun state of consciousness. Actually, one of the first steps... I ever learned in a dance class was smile at your partner. <laughs> it's also one of the easiest. Um, I had a fantastic dance teacher at Stanford, Richard Powers, and he would play this game with us. He would get us dancing, let's say, a, a slow, graceful cross-step waltz, and he would then switch out the music to something a little bit faster. We would dance a little bit faster, and then we would swap in another song a little bit faster, and we'd get a little bit faster, and he'd keep going until people started to trip. And then he would call out, what's wrong with the music? And if you don't know this game, your temptation is to go, oh, it's too fast. I can't dance it. But no, if you've been there before, you know that the correct answer to what is wrong with the music is always nothing. (laughs) If I'm trying to dance a complicated cross-step waltz at 180 beats a minute, that's not the music's fault. I need to switch into something easier, like a rotary or a Viennese waltz, and all of a sudden the music is mysteriously perfect again. 
Um, and he would extend this exercise to just mixing and matching all sorts of different styles of dancing and just saying, what can you dance to this? What can you dance to this? Change it, change it, change it. Uh, and keeping us just constantly attuning to what's trying to happen in the musical aura around us and adapt to it and flow with it. And he could even trick us into learning new types of dances that he had not taught us before just by constantly uh, encouraging that solution consciousness of, well, what can we dance to this? Um, And this applied to our partners as well. As if I have a partner who doesn't know the exact steps I'm doing, well, we find something else. And you just keep trying until you have something fun that you can both enjoy and share that joyful state of consciousness together. That was all it was about was what, what can we do to, to flow together in this joy. And so naturally, even if you're not a dancer, there ought to be something good to take out of this. Um, so how often in our lives do we, uh, do we feel that the music is going awfully too fast for us to keep up with um, or is otherwise not matching what we are trying to do? So excellent mantra is to just take, take that game and ask yourself, What's wrong with the metaphorical music? Nothing. <laughs> if you're not having fun yet, go try something else. <laughs> and if all else fails, you smile at your partner, you smile at your mistakes, and maybe you have a good time anyway. <laughs> Naturally, this, uh, this also fosters a practice of detachment. Um, because the more you can just smile at your mistakes and relax about it, the more something else can f- then flow through you. Um, And uh, Swami said, uh, there's a little story about this, Swami said he was not a fan of the Beatles' music, but they themselves completely won his heart. Early in their career, in an interview, somebody asked them, do you think your music will last? And one of them responded, don't see why it should. (laughs) (laughs) And Swami said that very relaxation about themselves was what made their music so popular because there's nothing getting in the way. Um, There needs to be a little bit of ego, just a little bit involved in making any form of art because somebody has to be there and physically move the paint or whatever. But um, he said it's the subtle difference between I am painting a tree versus what I am painting is a tree. And it's just that that little shift that can let things flow through you uh, and let the inspiration flow through you, which again is that hidden message that's supposed to be in all of art. Um, In Palo Alto, uh, the Living Wisdom School puts on a play every year, and uh, it's always on the life of a great saint, Jesus, Yogananda, St. Francis, Hafiz, um, and everybody in the school is involved, some 60, 70 kids, you know, kindergarten to eighth grade, everybody. And if you've never been to a Living Wisdom School play, some people hear school play and go, oh, no, please don't make me go to that. Um, (laughs) But I find it's actually always just one of the spiritual highlights of the year for me because it's incredible what these children can do. Um, And I often feel like there are two plays going on simultaneously when you watch this because on one level, yes, you have a lot of kids who who are growing into their bodies and voices and self-control to varying degrees. And, you know, you get what you get with a whole bunch of kids. And if you focus on that, yeah, it can kind of look almost like a school play. But these kids are just putting all their effort, all their energy and devotion into attuning themselves basically to whatever great master or saint the play is about that year. And 
And if you just tilt your head that way and look at it, that's the power that you see coming through everybody on the stage there. The play this last year was on Bernadette of Lourdes. And there are moments when the girl on the stage, you felt like she was having a vision of the Virgin Mary really there on the stage. Like you could just turn around and follow her gaze and see her too. And that is where the real performance was going on. That was, that's the power and the inspiration coming through because that lets us see, you know, we know God is always working through us everywhere and everything we do, but all of a sudden for one evening, you can see it there on the stage like that. Now, if you're creating art of any form and you want it to be uplifting, you don't have to specifically make it very overtly about God. And maybe in some cases it's not appropriate to. It depends who you're trying to help and how you can communicate with them. Um, Swami was very fond of a British humorist, P.G. Woodhouse. Most of us are probably familiar with his works. Um, and Woodhouse never never really wrote about God or spirituality, but he wrote just delightful stories. And you can hear Swami reading them on some recordings and just laughing and laughing. And, uh, and he said that what came through P.G. Woodhouse's writings was a sense of a happy life. He said you, you could tell that the author was a genuine friend and well-wisher of mankind, which sounds simple, but it's still so very uplifting, especially when you consider like all the other types of humor that are out there these days. There's a lot of junk out there. And it's refreshing to have something like that that lets you laugh in an open, uplifted, joyful way. Nor do you have to be extremely spiritually advanced to make great art, which is another relief, personally. Um, I was a little bit afraid before I read Art as a Hidden Message that Swami's advice on making great art would be a two-step process. Step one, meditate for 40 years. Step two, make art. <laughs> um, luckily, we should still meditate for 40 years, but we can make art along the way. Um, there was a, a 19th century poet named uh, Francis Thompson, who uh, for years was homeless and an opium addict and in many ways not someone you would really peg as a spiritual role model. But Master was very fond of Thompson's poem, The Hound of Heaven, and we have a recording of Master's voice reading it with great gusto. Um, and the hound of heaven is all about no matter how far you think you can get from God, God is always after you like a bloodhound finding you, ready to pick you up again, bring you back, help you. And Francis Thompson could write that because he had been so low, but he had also remembered to turn around and look up. And it's that directionality. Nowhere, no matter where we are on the scale of evolution from dirt to God, we can always turn around and face the right direction. And then the work that we do, the art that we do, everything that we do will have that uplifting quality. And so we all know where we're facing. There they are. And if we just remember to open and let that flow through and always face dire that direction, that 
subtle message will be the hidden message in everything. everyone. Please stand. It's a good time for those who are caught in the sun to relocate. Um, As you stretch and fill yourself, fill yourself with joy and enthusiasm, and you might recite to yourself, I, a tiny bubble of laughter, and become the sea of mirth itself. And please be seated when you're ready. I'm reminded, uh, Baudry reminded me that um, one of the great levelers of self-importance is being a parent. He is really not Baudry. He is, you know, father of Tulsi. And uh, I remember my first spiritual name. By the way, my name uh, currently is Nayaswami Daiva. But uh, my first spiritual name was Daughter Das, servant of the daughter. (laughs) Lasted for about 20 years. There's a, there's a uh, sweet story of a new minister who, um, two days before the Sunday service, was told by the minister that he was to do the first service on that Sunday. And he said, but I haven't prepared. What will I say? And the senior minister just smiled and said, God will provide. And the Sunday morning came, and the man, this young man, was desperate. And he... Um, <clears throat> was walking toward the church to give his service, and you know, sweat was pouring off his brow. And he saw some papers blowing in the wind, and he went over and he grabbed them. And it turned out to be the senior minister's talk for that day. <laughs> and so he stood up and he gave the talk. And the scene he watched as he was watching, the senior minister was, stand, was sitting there turning more and more pale. And he, at the end, they were kind of talking in between services. And the senior, senior minister said, you took my talk. What am I going to do? And the junior minister simply said, God will provide. (laughs) It's a little bit the story of this week. I want to thank all of the speakers this week. It has been an unbelievable, unbelievable week. We are given the invitation to speak a month or two before Spiritual Renewal Week, and because we're speaking on behalf of God and these great masters and Swami Kriyananda, it's important to really meditate on what would they like to have said? What's the message that will inspire and help carry this ray of light out into the world? And so I was meditating and I asked, you know, what is it that you would like to have said this week? And this is the portion I've been given. And I got here and I felt fairly comfortable with the talk that, that would be offered this morning. And then Anandi talked. And then... Ananta talked, and then Maria, and then Parvati and Pranaba. And um, on iteration number 15 or 17 of what would be needed to be said this week, um, then Atman spoke, and then... (laughs) (laughs) That God does provide. I was sitting... (laughs) Relax, Padma. (laughs) It's not your notes. (laughs) I was sitting in the first Kriya last night, and 
just feeling for what we have and what is here. And it was moving beyond measure. And I realized what we have here is safe harbor. What we have is a place where we we come together with the deepest yearning of our soul, with the most potent question. And we come, we really come from all over the world. It is a global convocation, both those who are here, but also those who are able, thank God for Dwapara Yuga and the digital age, who are able to connect through the online services. And we come and we, you know, our, our little craft that we've been sailing, the craft of our life, is windblown. Um, often the sails are tattered. The rigging has been shredded a bit. And we come into this harbor here. And for those of us who are visiting, this harbor, we come and we rest. And we rest in ways that we didn't even know was possible or needed. And those who live here, the um, port authority, if you will, or the, uh, the harbor masters, those who live here, they serve year-round, making this haven possible, keeping it alive so that people in the world can come and find real rest, find a moment of joy and freedom from all the tensions and stresses that come from this world. And we, we get our, our bottom paint restored and the barnacle scraped off while we're here. We get a chance to really meditate together and go deep into the stillness. And, you know, in a harbor, you know, the storms are out there beyond the breakwater. And we just have a chance to just be in that deep and powerful space But every one of us, the call of our soul is not to comfort and ease. Yogananda described God as ever-conscious, ever-existent, ever-new joy. He said evolution goes on endlessly until endlessness is reached. And the question of what is it that we're growing into? We're growing into the capacity to be in joy under every single circumstance, bar none. And so, you know, what we've done is we have sailed across these last years, these last weeks, these last months, into waters that are new to us, if we have been sailing. You know, many, many people have great capacity, and they know a lot of the seven seas. They know a lot of that infinite story. And so they set sail very boldly, and they go off, and it looks like they're going a far, a far distance. But they're still within waters they know how to navigate. And they come back, and they're very, you know, their ship is not wrecked. There's nothing happening. Everything looks very good. But there's nothing that's happened. They've just gone on a voyage that's already familiar. And for us who are seeking God, we have to go into the unfamiliar And as devotees in this world, as devotees, we've asked Yogananda's disciples, we've asked Yogananda, God through Yogananda and these great masters, to guide our lives. And from the moment, from the moment we say, I take this vow of discipleship, I take this vow of commitment 
we've said, guide my life moment by moment. Take me into those waters that are not yet remembered. Take me into those waters that are not yet familiar. I'm speaking now from, um, from a lot of very current experience because we have the privilege to serve as the spiritual directors up in Portland, Oregon, and Ananda Laurelwood. And for my discipleship life, these last 30-some years, um, I was talking about daughter Das, and I was just remembering, again, the other part of the talk today, I'll come back to where I was, but the other part of the talk today that I really felt like I was given this morning was I was sitting up here, I was walking by, Craig and I walked through, uh, he stopped off to join the choir, and I just walked on up, and I was just listening. 30-some years ago, I came to Ananda Village, having read The Path, and inspired by the power of joy in that book. And I called up, and this, this young woman named Therese answered the phone, and she said, and I was already a disciple of Yogananda, but I said, who are you guys? What do you do here? And she said, well, why don't you come and check it out? So I, I came up. <laughs> and now a word from our sponsor. Is there joy here even now? It's like a snake uncoiling here where everybody's watching to see what it's going to do next. Good job, Jyoti. Good catch. Is everybody okay? <laughs> I baptize thee. <laughs> I, yes, I baptize thee in joy and water. You okay? Yeah, we're not going to go back to the uh, sailing metaphor. <laughs> You know, some ships get knocked down, some turn turtle and have to be towed into port. Mm-hmm. It was a day not unlike today that we arrived. And Erica at that point was about four months old, five months old. And I heard something that day. Walking across the meadow, we walked from... World Brotherhood retreat at that time, expanding light across the meadow this direction. And the sky was this color blue. The trees were, were that radiant, life-giving green. The meadow was golden like this. And she was on the shoulders. And behind us was um, Erica's mom and our guide. And far enough I couldn't hear what they were saying. But I heard at one point laughter. And walking across here this morning... The, the choir blew it somehow. And what came out of it was this joyous release in laughter. And in both cases, the laughter was untainted by any kind of regret or tension. It was just filled with light and freedom and beauty and joy. And I thought, any place on this planet that can produce a sound like that is a place I want to be. 
But that's what we, that's what we do. That is our mission in life. Um, I'm not going to quote from my well-thumbed copy of the autobiography of a yogi. Okay, Kindle is great. I'm not going to quote because we just don't have time to go all the places we could go together. But just simply, as we leave here in the next few days, as we go back, for those who stay and hold this, thank you and God bless you. But for those who, go, who, who are called by the master to another life in other places, that call isn't to live a life of comfort. It isn't to live a life of anxiety and tension and fear, but to go where the master asks, even when it's unexpected. And to trust that that call will be filled and supported by God, by his, by his freedom, his joy. Yogananda talks in the autobiography, and it's been quoted now twice, but when we are in the joy of meditation, and this goes back to Kriya last night and the, and the port and what's actually here, when we are in the presence of the joy of meditation, we are unerringly guided to make the right decision in every single thing, and we don't know. You know, 30 years ago when we walked across that meadow, this wasn't here. The expanding light didn't look like it does. The village was only about 40% built. The kinds of struggles and trials and, and victories and losses and tensions and questions that all came up across the intervening 33 years. The questions that show up when you're trying to create something like this again for the first time yourself. The things, we don't know, we don't know where these things lead. The, ten, the tendency is when we get out of our water, when we get into um, other waters, is to contract on ourselves, is to tense up and try and make it all work using the tools we already know, using the maps from other waters. But what Master says is, go deep into the joy of meditation. Go deep into Kriya. And then when that, when that joy from meditation shows up in the midst of daily life, you will unerringly be guided to the right decisions in everything. And the right decisions not only lead to outer victories, but far more they lead to inner understanding and the expansion and capacity to hold joy under every circumstance, which is our goal. Thank you all. God bless. over 20 years, but I've been in the Northwest the last 23, so a little bit of liquid. I was just going to say today, uh, Timothy, next year, if we don't have the new Temple of Light yet, can we have the spray machine over here? But that was before it (laughs) blew up. (laughs) My name is Nayaswami Padma. And along with my husband, Swami Riemann, we're the spiritual directors at Ananda in Washington State. And it is a great blessing, even though I was teasing others that I'm the caboose this week. I'm the last one. And thank you, Daiva. You did take some words out of my mouth because I did want to comment what a powerful week it has been and... It is one that, you know, it's not just 
the staff and the speakers and those serving, but it's all of us coming together to recharge spiritually and feel that upliftment and be in that joy. I've had several people comment that this has been, once again, the most powerful one of all. You know, it always feels that way. Well, my aspect of this topic that I had chosen on the... uh, I didn't choose the one about uh, how to be an emissary for Yogananda's joy, but my piece of it is is being even-minded and cheerful at all times. And um, I learned on even-mindedness that we could all take a lesson from the weather because it never pays any attention to criticism. (laughs) Remains perfectly even. But uh, we had the blessing the day before Spiritual Renewal Week began to have our annual Sevaka retreat last Saturday. And the Sevaka order is Ananda's worldwide renunciate order. And I was reflecting that the, the three, the vow that we take as Sevakas in that order, and this is for householders and singles, it's for the whole gamut of life, And the vow that we take is three-pronged. And if I can just paraphrase it simply, it's a vow of simplicity, moderation, and cooperative obedience. And that vow which Swami Kriyananda created for us, that entire order that he founded, gives us the opportunity, if we follow the essence of each of those words, which are very deep and powerful concepts, if we follow them to their source or to their height, whichever way you want to look at it, they can bring us our spiritual freedom. So they're very, very powerful. So this even-minded and cheerful thing, moderation, aligns with that even-mindedness. Moderation. The yogic path is a path of moderation. Finding that balance in education for life, which if you think it's just a book for teachers and parents, you're greatly mistaken. Look at it. He doesn't use any Indian terms, but the basic Underlying teachings of yoga are the, the, the essence of what he offers there. And he offers tools of maturity as a way of balancing our intellect, our emotional nature, our physical nature, and our spiritual nature. Bringing everything integrated into balance is an essential aspect of success on the spiritual path. And the other aspect, cheerfulness. I, like some others here, when I first got this topic a few weeks ago, I looked on the digital autobiography of a yogi too, and I found five references to cheerfulness and many more to cheer, but to cheerfulness. And today I just want to 
tell you about one of them, because I think you'll enjoy it as I did. When Paramahansa Yogananda went in 1935 to India, Richard Wright was his secretary, and he wrote in his journal and used that word cheerful to describe Sri Yukteswar. I'm here to make it right for Sri Yukteswar this week. He talked about his jovial, rollicking laughter coming from the center of his belly, of his being, and that it was cheerful and sincere. And I just love that. You know, it's just a whole different way to look at Sri Yukteswar. Yogananda talked in other contexts about not joking too much. You know, if we are too much in that lightness, that lightheadedness, it just takes us off out into restlessness. But humor, you know, he always told us, have at least one joke and two or three points when you get up to speak. Humor is essential for us on the spiritual path. So what does it mean to be an emissary of Yogananda's joy? Every week in the Festival of Light, we say, thus may we understand that pain is the fruit of self-love, whereas joy is the fruit of love for God. So simple seeming, so beautiful. Joy is the fruit of love for God. And Yoganandaji gave us, he gave us what? The smile millionaire talk with a million ways to find our joy real practical. He gave us the joy diet. Many of you are familiar with that. He also gave the worry diet and the, no, the worry fast, excuse me. (laughs) Not the worry diet. (laughs) Actually, the only diet that I remember in that little section is the joy diet. So let's stick with that. And Swami Kriyananda founded Ananda, meaning joy. He surrounded us in joy constantly. The logo of Ananda is joy is within you. He used to sign his letters, joy is within you, constantly pointing us to joy. I remember years ago, he invited me to come over and um, coordinate and manage his special projects department, which at the time was called the Joyful Arts Production Association. And I, Japa, yes. And I remember my first day, I went over there. It was at the Crystal Hermitage. At the time, there was a fence around, you know, the far end of the pool, and there was a bathhouse on the other side that swimmers could use. And beyond that, there was a place where the monks used to live, a fourplex. And it was basically just a shack. It's been long since torn down. But that was the office, and I went in, and there was no plumbing, of course. We had to use the bathhouse, 
and there was one telephone line, and it was re- it had a really long cord, <laughs> and it reached into all four of those little rooms, and there was a small staff, maybe three or four people, and what was the Joyful Arts Production Association? Well, all I could see was six audio cassettes of Swami reading P.G. Woodhouse on tape and three or four musical cassettes. So, okay. So that afternoon, he invited me up for tea. And I said, Swamiji, what is the Joyful Arts Production Association? And he said, it's that part of Ananda that takes this work out. I said, oh, okay. So I went back to my office and I meditated on that. And I looked at those P.G. Woodhouse audios. The next day at tea, Swamiji, what is the Joyful Arts production? (laughs) It's that part of Ananda that takes the work out. Well, I don't have time to go into it all today. You know, bit by bit, he started to write books. It transformed into Crystal Clarity Publishers. There was a staff of 15 or so. But there were, I mean, I could be here for days talking about the many things that I learned during that time. I'm just going to touch on one of them today. Swamiji always had a way of uh, speaking in the the highest possible way about anything. And so we would, let's say, rent a hall for him to go out and lecture in. And let's say the hall could hold 300 people. And we would be there that night, and I would see little pockets of places where there were empty seats, but most of the hall was full, and there were maybe two or three people standing at the back of the room. And he would say later, There were 350 people there. There was standing room only. And I'd go, well, you know, my little practical side, okay, you know, if you say so, sir, you know. That would happen again and again and again. And it took me a long time to understand that what he was really saying and doing is seeing the highest possible octave, not just in everything, but in more importantly, in every one. And he could see our little pockets of dysfunction, but he wasn't looking at that. He was looking at that perfect soul and communicating with us, interacting with us, on that level alone. You know, I was going to mention the little Tulsi story about focus, my little granddaughter. It's so fun to be up here with Baudry. (laughs) Family thing. (laughs) But uh, with Crystal Clarity and before that, the Joyful Arts Production Association, we had to learn to focus, to be able to serve in the wake (laughs) of Swami Kriyananda, but it's not the kind of focus you would think. You had to focus on God and Guru first. 
And then all these things are added unto you, including focus in the work itself, which was also important and also, you know, encouraged. (laughs) But he was always just looking at that highest. And so in all of us, whether we're serving at Ananda or through Ananda or wherever we're serving, emissary can mean, it has two meanings, it can mean like an ambassador going out, but it also is we are all emissaries of that joy wherever we're serving. In Seattle, we have East West Bookshop and we have a lovely staff, they're all Ananda members, they're all Kriya Bonds, and they work together beautifully and collaboratively. There is not a week that goes by that there aren't customers who come into that store and say, I feel so much peace and joy in this place. I come here to feel good, to feel supported. And I don't think it's just the products. And I know it's not just the products because recently um, at our thrift store, we have a thrift store that supports our school. And it's located in a completely different city, about 10 or 12 miles away from East West. And on that particular day, it's all volunteers who work there, serve there. And Jamana, who many of you know, Nayaswami Jamana, was serving there that day. And a gentleman came in and was doing some shopping, and it's a thrift store, so it's mostly household items and clothing. And the man said to her, does this store have any relationship to East West Bookshop? He says, it feels the same. It's a vibration. That joy is a vibration. A few years ago, we started the farm the Ananda Farm at Kameno, with just Zach and Haley, who many of you know. And they are just such noble and joyful and in-tune spirits. For the first year and a half, they were there by themselves. And yet, you know, we would hear constantly all the people they met and networked with on Kameno Island. The, the dairy farm brought them fertilizer, manure, and they brought it to them, you know, in a big dump truck. And, and the, the wood guy, whoever, the wood chopper guy came and brought a bunch of, uh, what do you call it, chips that they could use for their mulching. And the nurseryman gave them you know, starters. And it isn't like they were just getting a million gifts. They were giving, too. They were constantly going out and helping other farmers and just networking with people. They have these farm suppers, and it's a fundraising event. They do them every month, and they're always packed with 40, 50 people. And it's a fundraiser, so it's 25 to $50, I think, per person. Three-quarters of the people there are people we don't know. They're from Kameno Island, but they've met Zach and Haley, and now their magnetic staff of seven that has grown. And they have that connection. They love being. And they say it. They just love being in that environment because that spirit of joy is there are gurus 
was an incarnation of joy. When you attune with him, that joy naturally comes. We had a dedication for the yoga hall recently. We had two. We had a spiritual dedication with Jyotish and Devi for the Ananda spiritual family up there. We also did a public one for sort of the yoga world and our neighbors. We invited the state senator, the um, deputy mayor of the city of Bothell, where the temple's located, and a city councilman in the city of Bothell. And Riemann and I had a little lunch with them before the program, and then we showed them the sanctuary. And those of you who've been there, it's a beautiful dome like the one in Assisi. And around the niches, all around the dome, are the symbols of the world religions. And they were so touched by that. Then they spoke. And they all three spoke about what they felt there and how important what they felt there, that light and that joy was to the city of Bothell and to the whole state. (laughs) And they spoke really eloquently about that. And the deputy mayor was a woman, and she was moved to tears as she spoke. And then when it was all over, we talked a little afterwards. She said, you know, I do a lot of dedications and grand openings. She said, I'm never moved to tears. She says, this place is really unique and really special. And the state senator comes to yoga now every week. (laughs) She's in her late 60s, but that doesn't stop her. She's quite fit. So that joy is a vibration. And it's a vibration that we all share, no matter what we do, no matter where we serve, whether we're in Texas or Nebraska or Hong Kong. That quality of joy is with us when we attune ourselves inwardly and love God to God. I want to close. The theme of this week was Autobiography of a Yogi, this blessed book. And I thought it was fitting at the end of this week to read just a little part at the end of the book. This is Yogananda speaking. Far into the night, my dear friend, the first Kriya Yogi in America, discussed with me the need for world colonies founded on a spiritual basis, the ills attributed to an anthropomorphic abstraction called society may be laid more realistically at the door of every man. Utopia must spring in the private bosom before it can flower in civic virtue. Man is a soul, not an institution. His inner reforms alone can lend permanence to outer ones. By stress on spiritual values, self-realization, a colony exemplifying world brotherhood, is empowered to send inspiring vibrations far beyond its locale. And I'll move forward. Gone was the tension of war years, our spirits purred in the sun of peace. 
I gazed happily at each of my American comrades. Lord, I thought gratefully, thou hast given this monk a large family. Clearly, we are all that family. And as Jyotish so brilliantly put it earlier this week, we are that third wave when Swami Kriyananda heard the call from Yogananda in 1949 at that garden party. We were all there with him in spirit, and he is with us today still in spirit as this wave carries forth as emissaries of joy.